A by Lard and Heloise. Volume One of Famous Affinities of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Famous Affinities of History by Lyndon Orr. Volume One. A by Lard and Heloise. Many a woman, amid the transports of passionate and languishing love, has cried out in a sort of ecstasy. I love you as no woman ever loved a man before. When she says this, she believes it. Her whole soul is aflame with the ardor of emotion. It really seems to her that no one ever could have loved so much as she. This cry, spontaneous, untaught, sincere, has become almost one of those conventionalities of amorous expression which belong to the vocabulary of self-abandonment. Every woman who utters it, when torn by the almost terrible extravagance of a great love, believes that no one before her has ever said it and that in her own case it is absolutely true yet how many women are really faithful to the end very many indeed if circumstances admit of easy faithfulness a high-souled generous adherent nature will endure the infinity of disillusionment of misfortune of neglect and even of ill-treatment even so the flame though it may sink low can be revived again to burn as brightly as before but in order that this may be so, it is necessary that the object of such a wonderful devotion be alive, and that he be present and visible. Or, if he be absent, that there should still exist some hope of renewing the exquisite intimacy of the past. A man who is sincerely loved may be compelled to take long journeys, which will separate him for any indefinite time from the woman who has given her heart to him, and she will be still a constant. He may be imprisoned, perhaps for life, yet there is always the hope of his release or of his escape and some women will be faithful to him and will watch for his return but given a situation which absolutely bars out hope which sunders two souls in such a way that they can never be united in this world and there we have a test so terribly severe that few even of the most loyal and intensely clinging lovers can endure it not that such a situation would lead a woman to turn to any other man than the one whom she had given her very life but we might expect that at least her strong desire would cool and weaken she might cherish his memory among the precious souvenirs of her love life but that she should still pour out the same rapturous unstinted passion as before seems almost too much to believe annals of emotion record only one such instance and so this instance has become known to all and has been cherished for nearly a thousand years it involves the story of a woman who did love perhaps as no one ever loved before or since for she was subjected to this cruel test and she met the test not alone completely but triumphantly and almost fiercely the story is of course the story of abelard and heloise it has many times been falsely told portions of it have been omitted and other portions have been garbled a whole literature has grown up around the subject it may be worth our while to clear away the ambiguous and doubtful points and once more tell it simply, without bias, with a strict adherence to what seems to be the truth attested by authentic records. There is one circumstance connected with the story which must specially note. The narrative does something more than set forth the one quite unimpeccable instance of unconquered constancy. It shows how, in the last analysis, that which touches the human heart has more vitality and more enduring interest and what concerns the intellect are those achievements of the human mind which are external to our emotional nature pierre abelard was undoubtedly the boldest and most creative reasoner of his time 
As a wandering teacher, he drew after him thousands of enthusiastic students. He gave a strong impetus to learning. He was a marvelous logician and an accomplished orator. Among his pupils were men who afterward became prelates of the church and distinguished scholars. In the dark age, when the dictates of reason were almost wholly disregarded, he fought fearlessly for intellectual freedom. He was practically the founder of the University of Paris, which in turn became the mother of medieval and modern universities. He was, therefore, a great and striking figure in the history of civilization. Nevertheless, he would today be remembered only by scholars and students of the Middle Ages, were it not for the fact that he inspired the most enduring love that history records. If Heloise had never loved him, and if their story had not been so tragic, so poignant, he would be today only a name known to but a few. His final resting place in the cemetery of Père Lachaise in Paris would not be sought out by thousands every year, and kept bright with flowers the gift of those who have themselves both loved and suffered. Pierre Abelard, or more fully Pierre Abelard de Palais, was a native of Brittany, born in the year 1079. His father was a knight, the lord of the manor, but Abelard cared little for the life of a petty noble, and so he gave up his seigneurial rights to his brothers, and went forth to become first of all a student, and then a published lecturer and teacher. His student days ended abruptly in Paris, where he enrolled himself as a pupil of a distinguished philosopher, Choliome de Champeau. But one day Abelard engaged in a disputation with his master. His wonderful combination of eloquence, logic, and originality utterly rooted Champeau, who was thus humiliated in the presence of his disciples. He was the first of many enemies that Abelard was destined to make in his long and stormy career. From that moment the young Briton himself set up as a teacher of philosophy, and the brilliancy of his discourses soon drew to him songs of students from all over Europe. Before proceeding with the story of Abelard, it is well to reconstruct, however slightly, a picture of the times in which he lived. It was an age when Western Europe was but partly civilized. Pedantry and learning of the most minute sort existed side by side with the most violent excesses of medieval barbarism. The church had undertaken the gigantic task of subduing and enlightening the semi-pagan people of France, Germany, and England. When we look back at that period, Sambelan justly censor Rome for not controlling more completely the savagery of the medievals. More fairly, should we wonder at the great measure of success which had been already achieved. The leaving of true Christianity was working in the half-pagan populations. It had not yet completely reached the nobles and the knights nor even all the ecclesiastics who served it, and who were consecrated to its mission. Thus, amid a sort of political chaos, were seen the glaring evils of feudalism. Kings and princes and their followers lived the lives of swine. Private blood feuds were regarded lightly. There was as yet no single central power. Every man carried his life in his hand, trusting to sword and dagger for protection. The cities were still mere hamlets, clustered around great castles of fortified cathedrals. In Paris itself, the network of dark lanes, ill-lighted and unguarded, was the scene of midnight murder and assassination. In the winter time, wolves infested the town by night. Men at arms with torches and spears often had to march out from the barracks to assail the snarling, yelping packs of savage animals that hunger drove from the surrounding forests. Paris of the twelfth century was typical of France itself, which was harried by human wolves, intent on rapine and wanton plunder. There were great schools of theology, but the students who attended them fought and slashed one another, 
if a man's life was threatened he must protect it by his own strength or by gathering about him a band of friends no one was safe no one was tolerant very few were free from the grosser vices even in some of the religious houses the brothers would meet at night for unseemly revels splashing the stone floors with wine and shrieking in a delirium of drunkenness the rules of the church enjoined temperance continence and celibacy but the decrees of leo ninth and nicholas second and alexander second and gregory were only partially observed in fact europe was in a state of chaos political and moral and social only very slowly was order emerging from sheer anarchy we must remember this when we recall some facts which meet us in the story of abelard and heloise the jealousy of champot drove abelard for a time from paris he taught and lectured at several other centres of learning always admired and yet at the same time denounced by many for his advocacy of reason against blind faith during the years of his wandering he came to have a wide knowledge of the world and of human nature if we try to imagine him as he was in the thirty and fifth year we shall find in him a remarkable combination of attractive qualities it must be remembered that though in a sense he was ecclesiastic he had not yet been ordained to the priesthood but was rather a canon a person who did not belong to any religious order though he was supposed to live according to a definite set of religious rules and as a member of a religious community abelard however made rather light of his churchy associations he was at once an accomplished man of the world and a profound scholar there was nothing of the recluse about him he mingled with his fellow-men whom he dominated by the charm of his personality he was eloquent adherent and persuasive he could turn a delicate compliment as skilfully as he could elaborate a syllogism his rich voice had in it a seductive quality which was never without its effect handsome well formed he possessed as much vigour of body as of mind nor were his accomplishments entirely those of the scholar he wrote dainty verses which he had also set to music and which he sang himself with a rare skill some have called him the first of the troubadours and many who cared nothing for his skill and logic admired him for his gifts as a musician and a poet altogether he was one to attract attention wherever he went for none could fail to recognize his power it was soon after his thirty-fifth year that he returned to paris where he was welcomed by thousands with much tact he reconciled himself to his enemies so that his life now seemed to be full of promise and of sunshine it was at this time that he became acquainted with a very beautiful young girl named heloise she was only eighteen years of age yet already she possessed not only beauty but many accomplishments which were quite rare in women since she both wrote and spoke a number of languages and like abelard she was a lover of music and poetry heloise was the illegitimate daughter of a canon of patrician blood so that she is said to have been a worthy representative of the noble house of the montmorencys famous throughout french history for chivalry and charm up to this time we do not know precisely what sort of life abelard had lived in private his enemies declared that he had squandered his substance in vicious ways his friends denied this and represented him as strict and caste the truth probably lies between these assertions he was naturally a pleasure-loving man of the world who may very possibly have relieved his severer studies by occasional revelry and light love it is not at all likely that he was addicted to gross passions and low practices but such as he was when he first saw heloise he conceived for her violent attachment carefully guarded in the house of her uncle falbert it was difficult at first for abelard to meet her save in the most casual way 
Yet every time that he heard her exquisite voice and watched her graceful manners, he became more and more infatuated. His studies suddenly seemed tame and colorless beside the fierce scarlet flame which blazed up in his heart. Nevertheless, it was because of these studies and of his great reputation as a scholar that he managed to obtain access to Heloise. He flattered her uncle and made a chance proposal that he should himself become an inmate of Fulbert's house in order that he might teach this girl of so much promise. Such an offering from so brilliant a man was joyfully accepted. From that time Abelard could visit Heloise without restraint. He was her teacher, and the two spent hours together, nominally in the study of Greek and Hebrew, but doubtless very little was said between them upon such unattractive subjects. On the contrary, with all his wide experience of life, his eloquence, his perfect manners, and his fascination, Abelard put forth his power to captivate the senses of a girl still in her teens, and quite ignorant to the world. As Remusé says, he employed to win her the great genius which had overwhelmed all the great centers of learning in the western world. It was then that the pleasures of knowledge, the joys of thought, the emotions of eloquence, were all called into play to charm and move and plunge into a profound and strange intoxication this noble and tender heart which had never known either love or sorrow one can imagine that everything helped on the inevitable end their studies gave them opportunities to see each other freely and also permitted them to be alone together then their books lay open between them but either long periods of silence still their reading or else words of deepening intimacy made them forget their studies altogether the eyes of the two lovers turned from the book to mingle their glances and then to turn away in a confusion that was conscious hand would touch hand apparently by accident and when conversation ceased abelard would often hear the long quivering sigh which showed the strange half frightened and yet exquisite joy which heloise experienced it was not long before the girl's heart had been wholly won transported by her emotion she met the caresses of her lover with those as unrestrained as his her very innocence deprived her of the protection which all the women would have had all was given freely and even wildly by heloise and all was taken by abelard who afterward himself declared the pleasure of teaching her to love surpassed the delightful fragrance of all the perfumes in the world yet those two could not always live in a paradise which was entirely their own the world of paris took notice of their close association some poems written to heloise by abelard as if in letters of fire were found and shown to fulbert who until this time had suspected nothing angrily he ordered abelard to leave his house he forbade his niece to see her lover any more but the two could not be separated and indeed there was good reason why they should still cling together secretly heloise left her uncle's house and fled through the narrow lanes of paris to the dwelling of abelard's sister denise where abelard himself was living there presently the young girl gave birth to a son who was named aristolabe after an instrument used by astronomers since both the father and the mother felt that the offspring of so great a love should not have an ordinary name fulbert was furious and rightly so his hospitality had been outraged and his niece dishonored he insisted that the pair should at once be married here was revealed a certain weakness in the character of abelard he consented to the marriage but insisted that it should be kept an utter secret oddly enough it was heloise herself who objected to becoming the wife of the man she loved unselfishness could go no farther she saw that were he to marry her his advancement in the church would be almost impossible 
for while the very minor clergy sometimes married in spite of the papal bulls matrimony was becoming a fatal part of ecclesiastical promotion and so heloise pleaded pitifully both with her uncle and with abelard that there should be no marriage she would rather bear all manner of disgrace than stand in the way of abelard's advancement he has himself given some of the words in which she pleaded with him what glory shall i win from you when i have made you quite inglorious and have humbled both of us what vengeance will the world inflict on me if i deprive it from one so brilliant what curses will follow such a marriage how outrageous would it be that you whom nature created for the universal good should be devoted to one woman and plunged into such disgrace i loathe the thought of a marriage which should humiliate you indeed every possible effort which another woman in her place would employ to make him marry her she used in order to dissuade him finally her sweet face streaming with tears she uttered the tremendous sentence which makes one really think that she loved him as no other woman ever loved a man she cried out in an agony of self-sacrifice i would rather be your mistress than the wife even of an emperor nevertheless the two were married and abelard returned to his lecture-room and his studies for months they met but seldom meanwhile however the taunts and innuendos directed against heloise so irritated fulbert that he broke his promise of secrecy and told his friends that abelard and heloise were man and wife they went to heloise for confirmation once more she showed in an extraordinary way the depths of her devotion i am no wife she said it is not true that abelard has married me my uncle merely tells you this to save my reputation they asked her whether she would swear to this and without a moment's hesitation this pure and noble woman took an oath upon the scriptures that there had been no marriage fulbert was enraged by this his ill-treated heloise and furthermore he forbade abelard to visit her the girl therefore again left her uncle's house and betook herself to a convent just outside of paris where she assumed the habit of a nun as a disguise there abelard continued from time to time to meet her when fulbert heard this he put his own interpretation on it he believed that abelard intended to ignore the marriage altogether and that possibly he might even marry some other woman in any case he now hated abelard with all his heart and he resolved to take a fearful and unnatural vengeance which would at once prevent his enemy from making any other marriage while at the same time it would debar him from ecclesiastical preferment to carry out this plot fulbert first bribed the man who was the body-servant of abelard watching at the door of his room each night then he hired the services of four ruffians after abelard had retired and was deep in slumber the treacherous valet unbarred the door the hirelings of fulbert entered and fell upon the sleeping man three of them bound him fast while the fourth with a razor inflicted on him the most shameful mutilation that is possible then extinguishing the lights the wretches slunk away and were lost in darkness leaving behind the victim bound to his couch uttering cries of torment and bathed in his own blood it is a shocking story and yet it is immensely characteristic of the lawless and barbarous era in which it happened early the next morning the news flew rapidly through paris the city hummed like a beehive citizens and students and ecclesiastics poured into the street and surrounded the house of abelard almost the entire city said fulquet as quoted by mccabe and clamoring toward his house women wept as if each one had lost her husband unmanned though he was abelard still retained enough of the spirit of his time to seek vengeance he in his turn employed ruffians whom he set upon the track of those who had assaulted him 
The treacherous valet and one of Fulbert's hirelings were run down, seized and mutilated precisely as Abelard had been, and their eyes were blinded. A third was lodged in prison. Fulbert himself was accused before one of the church courts, which alone had power to punish an ecclesiastic, and all his goods were confiscated. But, meantime, how did it fare with Heloise? Her grief was greater than his own, while her love and her devotion were absolutely undiminished. But Abelard now showed a selfishness, and indeed a meanness, far beyond any that he had before exhibited. Heloise could no more be his wife. He made it plain that he put no trust in her fidelity. He was unwilling that she should live in the world while he could not, and so he told her sternly that she must take the veil and bury herself forever in a nunnery. The pain and shame which she experienced at this came wholly from the fact that evidently Abelard did not trust her. Long afterward she wrote, God knows, I should not have hesitated at your command to proceed or to follow you to hell itself. It was his distrust that cut her to the heart. Still, her love for him was so intense that she obeyed his order. Soon after she took the vows, and in the convent chapel, shaken with sobs, she knelt before the altar and assumed the veil of a cloistered nun. Abelard himself put on the tunic of a Benedictine monk and entered the abbey of St. Denis. It is unnecessary here to follow out all the details of the lives of Abelard and Heloise. After this heart-rendering scene, Abelard passed through many years of strife and disappointment, and even of humiliation. For on one occasion, just as he had silenced Guillaume de Champeaux, so he himself was silenced and put to rout by Bernard of Claveau, a frail, tense, absorbed, dominant little man, whose face was white and worn with suffering, but in whose eyes there was a light of supreme strength. Bernard represented pure faith, as Abelard represented pure reason, and the two men met before a great council to match their respective powers. Bernard, with fiery eloquence, brought a charge of heresy against Abelard in an oration which was like a charge of cavalry. When he had concluded, Abelard rose with an ashen face, stammered out a few words, and sat down. He was condemned by the council, and his works were ordered to be burned. All his later life was one of misfortune, humiliation and even of personal danger the reckless monks whom he tried to rule rose fiercely against him his life was threatened he betook himself to a desolate and lonely place where he built for himself a hut of reeds and rushes hoping to spend his final years in meditation but there were many who had not forgotten his ability as a teacher these flocked by hundreds to the desert place where he abode his hut was surrounded by tents and rude hovels built by his scholars for their shelter Thus Abelard resumed his teaching, though in a very different frame of mind. In time he built a structure of wood and stone, which he called the Periclete, some remains of which still can be seen. All this time no word had passed between him and Heloise. But presently Abelard wrote and gave to the world a curious and unexceedingly frank book, which he called The Story of My Misfortunes. A copy of it reached the hands of Heloise, and she at once sent to Abelard the first of a series of letters which have remained unique in the literature of love. Ten years had passed, and yet the woman's heart was as faithful and as full of yearning as on the day when the two had parted. It has been said that the letters are not genuine, but they must be read with this assertion in mind, yet it is difficult to believe that anyone save Heloise herself could have flung a human soul into such frankly passionate utterances, or that any imitator could have done the work. In her first letter, which was sent to Abelard, written upon parchment, she said, At thy command, I would change not merely my costume, but my very soul, 
so entirely art thou the sole possessor of my body and my spirit never god is my witness never have i sought anything in thee but thyself i have sought thee and not thy gifts i have not looked to the marriage bond or dowry she begged him to write to her and to lead her to god as once he had led her into the mysteries of pleasure abelard answered in a letter friendly to be sure but formal the letter of a priest to a cloistered nun the opening words of it are characteristic to the whole to heloise his sister in christ from abelard her brother in him the letter was a long one but throughout the whole of it the writer's tone was cold and prudent its very coldness roused her soul to a passionate revolt her second letter bursts forth in a sort of anguish how hast thou been able to frame such thoughts dearest how hast thou found words to convey them oh if i dared but call god cruel to me oh most wretched of all creatures that i am so sweet did i find the pleasures of our loving days that i cannot bring myself to reject them or to banish them from my memory wheresoever i go they thrust themselves upon my vision and rekindle the old desire but abelard knew only too well that not in this life could there be anything save spiritual love between himself and heloise he wrote to her again and again always in the same remote and unimpassioned way he tells her about the history of monasticism and discusses with her the matters of theology and ethics but he never writes one word to feed the flame that is consuming her the woman understood at last and by degrees her letters became as calm as his suffused however with a tenderness and feeling that showed that in her heart of hearts she was still entirely given to him after some years abelard left his dwelling at the paraclete and there was founded there a religious house of which heloise became the abbess all the world respected her for her sweetness her wisdom and the purity of her character she made friends as easily as abelard made enemies even bernard who had overthrown her husband sought out heloise to ask her advice and counsel abelard died while on his way to rome whither he was journeying in order to undergo a penalty and his body was brought back to the paraclete where it was entombed over it for twenty-two years heloise watched with tender care and when she died her body was laid beside that of her lover to-day their bones are mingled as she would have desired them to be mingled the stones of their tomb in the great cemetery of pere lachaise were brought from the ruins of the paraclete and above the sarcophagus are two recumbent figures the whole being the work of the artist alexandre lenoir who died in eighteen thirty six the figure representing heloise is not however an authentic likeness the model for it was a lady belonging to a noble family of france and the figure itself was brought to pere lachaise from the ancient college de beauvais the letters of heloise have been read and imitated throughout the whole of the last nine centuries some have found in them the utterances of a woman whose love of love was greater than her love of god and whose intensity of passion nothing could subdue and so these have condemned her but others like chateaubriand have more truly seen in them a pure and noble spirit to whom fate had been very cruel and who was after all writing to the man who had been her lawful husband some of the most famous imitations of her letters are those in the ancient poem entitled the romans of the rose written by jean de meux in the thirteenth century in the modern times her first letter was paraphrased by alexander pope and in french by Coladeux. there exist in english half a dozen translations of them with abelard's replies it is interesting to remember that practically all the other writings of abelard remained unpublished and unedited until a very recent period he was a remarkable figure as a philosopher and scholar but the world cares for him only because he was loved by heloise 
End of Abelard and Heloise. Recording by Ellie. August 2009.